This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The period around World War II is one of the most important in American history. The decades afterwards saw great innovation, development of new business sectors, as well as advances in medicine and technology. Wages and productivity also increased significantly. But that growth has slowed in recent decades and has put us in a spot right now that while the economy is growing, it is growing for only a chosen few in our country. That shift has also significantly impacted to the negative, the American middle class, which has been viewed in the past as a stalwart of the U.S. economy. So is there a way to return our economy to the days when everyone benefited? There is, according to our next guest, Simon Johnson, professor of entrepreneurship at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He is also co-author of the new book, Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Working on that book with his colleague, Jonathan Gruber, and a pleasure to have Simon joining us right now. Simon, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And also joining me here in studio, Knowledge of Wharton Senior Managing Editor, Steve Shredda. Steve, great to see you. Great. Great to be here. Good morning. Great. Thank to have, thanks for uh, all of you joining us today. Simon, this mindset of growth, but, but benefiting the very few, really was driven from where? Well, as you, as you said in the introduction, we, we had this period in the 40s, 50s, definitely into the 60s, and arguably into the 70s, where more or less everyone benefited. It's a broad middle class development. So it's, it's really when you, when you certainly in retrospect from the 1980s that it tips over and becomes more of an exclusive model. Median wages don't go up very much, if at all, from the late 1980s. So it's the last three decades, really. Uh, hey, Simon, welcome back. It's been too long since we've had you here. Uh, I wanted to ask if you could just very briefly sketch how the monolith of American science research and development came about by necessity during World War II and that how that propelled the economy, as, as we've mentioned here, through a couple of decades. Just a brief sketch that you, uh, that you outlined so well in your book. Yes, thank you. And, and I, I think it is, it's a fascinating story that a lot of people have, have actually forgotten. At the very beginning of World War II, and America was on the sidelines, there was a realization in top scientific circles and also a bipartisan realization in Washington that the U.S. didn't lead the world in terms of uh, relevant technology for, for fighting the war. And as a result, there was a systematic uh, and eventually large-scale push to develop technologies, including radar, that had a huge immediate impact, and, of course, including uh, the development of the atomic bomb that was transformative in, in many, many ways. From that experience and those very intense five years and, and winning World War II came the rather profound thought that we could have a big systematic push led by the public sector on basic science for, for domestic, peaceful, productivity-enhancing purposes. And, and that became a major emphasis and, and a real boost to the private sector in the 40s, 50s, and into the 1960s. So it was a more or less a, a paradigm mental shift in terms of what the government can do and how to use public resources. But it was very much tied, and I would emphasize, with private sector development. It was, this was a public-private partnership, which the U.S. really pioneered uh, and was adopted subsequently by a lot of people around the world. So before we get to uh, why things changed and how funding uh, fell fell back, I think a good way to, to look at this is with some of the fascinating examples that you cite in the book. So for example, the transistor, which we all know is the basic for semiconductors and thus our, our computer technology, was created by Bell Labs, which is, was a private company, of course, but it was built upon critical work 
done with radar during World War II. And the transistor replaced the vacuum tube, and then there was some more basic research uh, done by the government on that. And so also the semiconductor, you might say, a basic building block of our information telecom society today, is related to the transistor and has a similar story. So it wasn't the Silicon Valley folks, as you point out, in a garage creating these magnificent things, was it? It was really R&D was behind the first integrated circuit, was paid for by the federal government, and, of course, the government also created the Internet, GPS, and many other things, or at least funded those creations. That's absolutely right. Although the way I would frame it is by saying it's a partnership between the public sector and the private sector. Yes, there were Silicon Valley geniuses uh, in their, literally in their garages, and they played a role. But there was also this big public commitment to basic science which was actually less about economic development. It was more about national security. So in addition to what you just said about transistors and semiconductors, I would remind everyone that very, there were very few customers for um, transistors at the beginning other than the U.S. military. And in fact, the Misselman um, rocket program in the early 1960s bought most of the um, transistors that were manufactured. Vacuum tubes didn't work very well in rockets. Transistors solved that problem. It really became a commercial product only at the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s. So the government is involved in the development of digital electronic computers all the way through until it really starts to take off in the 1970s. Yeah, there's a great quote in your book, which is as follows, almost everything about your computer today and the way you use it stems from government funding at early stages. So I think that kind of sums it up nicely. Um, and you, you point out also in the book that um, I think a quarter of, of uh, Bell Labs' semiconductor budget was funded by the military. And this is another piece from the book I thought was interesting. 85% of U.S. electronics research in 1959 was paid by the federal government, and the Defense Department funded nearly half of all semiconductor R&D from the late 1950s until the early 70s. So that partnership was durable, lasted a long time, and, and uh, worked out very well. Yes, and it was seen as an important part of national security, particularly after the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik, the first artificial man-made uh, satellite in 1957. And, and so the response to that challenge, that technological challenge, was invest a lot more in our own technology, train people, educate people. So the National Defense Education Act of 1958, uh, we argue, is, is an absolutely essential complementary piece to the government push on R&D. You need uh, a demand for, for skilled labor and a supply of skilled labor, and you need to spread the jobs and opportunities throughout the, the, the skill distribution and the education distribution of the population. That's what we did absolutely into the 1960s. So, so uh, moving on from there, there is, it's very interesting that the federal government took a lot of the big risks with the basic research, which isn't all that profitable. It's often a long-term payout, 15 or 20 years, something that companies are more or less loath to do because they're looking for a much faster return on their investments than that. Uh, but, and, but it's interesting that, um, so the government did, a, a, in partnership, as you, as you mentioned, with universities and uh, with companies, uh, they, they did the basic research, they let others earn the profits, and these, it's these big industries that sustain us today, uh, sustain our economy, and might not have come about for years if uh, there wasn't this partnership that you talked about, or it might have been d done by others, which would have taken the lead instead of us. So there's a couple of very important things for our economy in there. Yeah, absolutely. So the government definitely played the role as a catalyst. Maybe it's more than a catalyst, but definitely at least a catalyst. And I think in terms of international competition, you put your finger on a very good, important point, which is it is win-win when new technologies get developed somewhere else, we can adopt them and use them. But whoever 
first creates a technology and, and is, it manages that breakthrough. Human Genome Project would be good, a good point, uh, a more recent example. Whoever does that as a country and as a region and as a city tends to get a disproportionate share of the good jobs for a long period of time subsequently. So we have about 280,000 jobs in and around genomics right now in the United States because we put... $3 billion of U.S. federal money into the Human Genome Project and mapping the human genome. $3 billion went in over 15 years. We get $6 billion a year out of that in terms of taxation. That's an amazing rate of return. But no private company wanted to do it, and no private company would have done it because of the spillovers and because you can't capture these big social rates of return in, in a private fashion on the basic science. You can on the applied stuff, but not when you're doing the big breakthroughs. So another interesting point you make is is a, a, around what you were just talking about. So so the federal government then, for reasons I hope you'll explain to us, cut back on funding for basic research quite a bit. Now, you, you point out in the book that the private sector picked up the slack as far as the dollars were concerned. So there's still a large amount of R&D, obviously, going on in the United States, and, and private companies... Uh, replace some of that or maybe even a lot of that government money. The problem is, from your point of view, as you state in the book, is that the way private, the private sector invests in R&D versus the way uh, the government, in combination with universities in some sort of partnership, three-way partnership, is able to take the long view because they're not looking at profit. They're just developing the basic research, which then spins off the products that that companies develop from the basic research. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, we like private R&D. We don't want to be <laughs> misunderstood on that. And, and we'd like actually more of it to happen. But the key point is, as you actually said a few moments ago, time horizons are fundamentally different. So if you, if you go to the stock market and say, hey, we've got a great idea that may or may not pan out and have massive social impact in 15 years, you're not going to get that funded. I mean, people want to know what's the return to me as an investor. And, and that's how the system works. And we're not trying to change that. What we're saying is you need a, a government push to try and get the breakthroughs and, and to try and get these social spillover effects that may affect obvious companies or it may turn out having an effect far away in a different part of the economy that you can't anticipate. Those are all going to be benefits. Those are all going to be gains. But no private enterprise and no private philanthropist, by the way, either has got enough resources and, and, and uh, could fund that on, on the scale that the government has been able to do in the past and still does some of it. But, but has, we've backed away and we should re-up in terms of that commitment. Could you give me a stat on how much the government has backed away percentage-wise or dollar-wise over the last couple decades? Sure. Well, it, at our peak uh, in the mid-1960s, public research and development was about 2% of GDP. So that's $1 in $50 spent in the economy. We are now around 0.7% of GDP. And that's the right way to think about it because you want every, everything grows over time, obviously. Mm -hmm. You want to think about how much you're investing in the basics and in the potential breakthroughs relative to the size of the economy. So we've backed away. We're spending less than half relative to the size of the economy. And in our proposal, in our book, we suggest pushing back up by about 0.5% of GDP. That's about $100 billion per year. That's a substantial commitment that would move the needle. That would create about 4 million new good jobs over time. That would not put us back to where we were in the 1960s. That would put us back actually to where we were in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. So this commitment to the breakthroughs has slipped gradually over the decades. And we think that you can't go back to the 1980s, but you can put more money in and you can get a better, different path for the future by betting more on, on, on finding these breakthroughs. And just to underline this whole, this whole idea, it's that the, the private sector does a lot of investment 
but it's doing a different kind of investment because it, it wants a more rapid return. And that leaves a big hole in the amount of money that goes towards innovation as a whole. And uh, maybe you can talk about this valley of death concept that you have in the book, which I found very interesting also, which involves the free rider concept and, and as well as the length of time it takes for the ROI, which you've already covered. Right. So there is. So in addition to the um, the need to fund breakthroughs and to fund that acquisition and accumulation of knowledge, there is also the issue of how do you commercialize it? How do you cross over for something that's capital intensive, for something where the returns to a particular investor, in particular um, private company, may be uncertain? How do you cross over to to get that to scale? Now, obviously, within information technology, within companies that we've seen grow like Google and Amazon, there are purely private sector ways to do that. And we're not trying to get in that way. But if you look at more capital-intensive technologies, for example, around clean energy or more efficient energy, there have been a number of prominent cases. We talk about a a prominent um, company that that makes batteries in the the book that developed basic technology, wanted to take it to scale, couldn't find the funding in private markets in the U.S., and the government wasn't providing the support that would make a difference. So they did fund it, and they have scaled up, but they did it in China. And so if you look at – some people say, well, the Chinese have got a fundamentally different economic model, and, and, and that's an issue. You know, maybe on some margins. But I would say at its core, the Chinese have actually studied American history and have thought about public-private partnerships and are finding ways for the public sector to help the private sector develop knowledge and cross the valley of death to get to commercial scale. And that's even more challenging than anything you may think they're doing in terms of cheating the system. Interesting, because you do note in the book that – um, a contingent of Chinese came over, was it the early 80s, and studied our research park model and, and went back and, and did a quite good job of duplicating it or even surpassing it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Look, the Chinese have, and other people have paid close attention to, to, to what we've done in the past. And the Chinese have learned from our experience. They've looked at versions of, of what we did that were applied in Taiwan, in Singapore, and other parts of Asia. So there's been some refinements that have gone on. Look, the good news is we can do better. And, and, and we have built some amazing clusters of innovation, including with public-private partnerships in and around, for example, biotech. So Cambridge, Boston, Massachusetts have benefited greatly from that. Problem is, it's a bit isolated. It's more in life sciences than it is in, in other things. These uh, geographic leading clusters on the East Coast and the West Coast have become immensely crowded and very expensive as a place to do business. We haven't yet spread enough of that opportunity into other parts of the country. We think the time is ripe to take advantage of the fact we have a lot of really good technical, managerial, skilled talent across the country. That's a big geographic advantage we have that we should be leveraging at this point. And Simon, you actually in the book list 102 towns, locations across the U.S. that you believe are are just ripe to be significant technology hubs right now in the U.S. Yes, that's right. And and the best, most satisfying conversation I've had since the book came out was with an entrepreneur who said, Simon, I've read your book. I was going to expand my my business, which is based on tapping into tech talent and helping tech talent develop. I was going to expand it in more of the the coastal megacities, but I've changed my plan based on your book. And I'm now prioritizing those 102 places because I can see the upside there and I can see that we're going to be very welcome there. And I can see the impact we're going to have there is going to be enormous. So that's extremely gratifying. And and we're hearing that from other people as well. There are many places that want want more good jobs and, and are working really hard. There's a lot of local energy heading in that direction. We think, once again, the federal government could play a catalytic role in those places where people want those jobs. I, I think it's 
interesting, I think maybe the bottom line of it all is that this investment in R&D leads to new products, new companies, maybe new industries sometimes, as we've seen, and that this is fantastic for the economy. But it's also a creator of well-paying jobs, which is really, you know, one of the most important things I thought that came out of the book. Could you elaborate on that? Absolutely. You, you, that, that's the key bundle. And that's what we had in, in the post-war period, which is productivity grows. That's good. That, that's the basis of your economic growth. That means you've got you know, more, more stuff to go around in the economy. But as part of that productivity growth machine, you generate good jobs. And, and what we've had in, in some part, well, productivity growth has slowed overall since, since the 1970s. To the extent we have productivity growth in, in some parts of the economy, it is not associated with more good jobs. It's associated actually with fewer good jobs. So that certainly middle income, middle um, skilled jobs have been squeezed out. We have a so-called polarization of the, of the job market that's going on. We think that by – and there's a lot of evidence to support this – by um, reigniting this and, and, and boosting this innovation machinery that we actually have already in the United States, and we've just sort of let it fall a little bit in, into disrepair, by boosting that and strengthening that and by spreading it around the country, you will get the, the breakthrough products and the new ideas, and that's your productivity piece. But you will also have a lot of people employed in building the infrastructure, supporting the scientific effort, running the labs. Some of those people have PhDs, absolutely. A lot of them don't. The genomics industry, for example, average wage is $70,000 per year. Those are good jobs, but those are not PhD or PhD jobs. There's an entire complex of people working in that industry with many different education levels. Those are jobs that are not going to be outsourced anytime soon to China or anywhere else. Another point that you make is that um, if we don't do it, someone else will. So we're in a a competitive race, as I don't think anyone is unaware of, uh, particularly with China when it comes to a lot of high-tech things and uh, AI and that sort of thing. And so it's, yes, we want to do this and uh, build up our industries and jobs. But if we don't, uh, we risk falling behind in the, in the way that other countries fell behind the United States in the past. Absolutely. There are plenty of countries that led in terms of technology development uh, during human history. Uh, we could go back to Rome. We could talk about Venice from the 1300s. We could obviously talk about the UK in the 19th century. The United States steps up in the late 19th century, becomes an innovative engineering place from the 1940, really applies science and figures out how to move the next level of science into commercial products. Nobody's ever seen like that, anything like that ever before in the world. And that builds a middle class like you've never seen before. We lost that. We, we backed away from it. Other people have figured this out. It's not a, a win-lose situation. It's not that we have to beat up on some other country or take it away from some other country. On the contrary, we need to do what we're good at, which is innovate, create jobs. That will help us. That will benefit everybody else who, who trades with us. We will have more of those good jobs in the United States if we lead in terms of developing more new technologies. That's the key bottom line. So you're arguing in the book, I think, that there's a sweet spot for R&D that, that we used to have that we lost for various reasons. And it involves a triad of, I guess, government funding for basic research, such as for the NIH, uh, and also government funding, which would go to universities, so some direct government research and uh, funding of university research. And then uh, industry, which does its own research, of course, but but they would also pick up the development side of the R&D more so. Uh, is that correct? Is that what we're talking about? And maybe you could could outline what that model actually looks like. 
Yes, that, that is exactly the model, with the universities playing a key role, and that was what was figured out during World War II, and, and really innov- that was the key innovation, I would say, from an institutional, organizational point of view, because the universities are you know, a little bit isolated from commercial pressures. They can have a longer time horizon. The incentives are a little bit different. But you don't want uh, what some people call the ivory tower effect. You don't want the researchers just looking at the research for its own sake. You need those private sector, private industry uh, connections. And, and you know, uh, if I may, I I would suggest that MIT um, historically and and in the modern version is is one example of how to do this. Stanford, of course, is is another. Other great schools, including the University of Pennsylvania, have done this as well. Uh, Carnegie Mellon in, in, in Pennsylvania stands out as places where there's a lot of conversation and connection with the private sector, a lot of interest in developing products that could really change the world. But there's also time and space for deeper research in the labs, and the government is funding that piece of it. So it's that triangle, as you said. Most other countries, by the way, have struggled, really struggled to to build that. I'm I'm from the the United Kingdom, as you may have guessed from my accent. Um, And there has been progress in this direction, but it took centuries to really change how some of these big name prestigious universities in the UK operated. The US has always had, or at least since the 1940s, has had something of an edge in this space. But other people have noticed and and they're figuring this out. Uh, Just as as a wrap up, could you just run through again how much this would cost, um, how it would work, how, how, how the money might get distributed to some of these uh, cities outside of the, the Northeast and the West Coast, as you, as you talked about being ideal because that would diversify the innovation. And, and, and Simon, if you can do that in about 45 seconds. <laughs> we propose building and developing 20 to 30 new hubs for technology development around the country. There are excellent places that could do that. If you did this proposal at full scale, it would cost about $100 billion a year. That's create 4 million new jobs over time. It would absolutely move the needle in terms of supporting the middle class. And we propose upside capture mechanisms so that the capital appreciation you get from the the equity and the land value uh, that rises when you do this, some of that would flow back not to new government programs, but come back to all Americans in the form of a cash dividend, cash into everyone's pocket as a result of this renewed public commitment to research and development. Simon, thanks very much for joining us on the show today. Great insight. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Steve. Great seeing you. Thanks for your insight. Yeah. Thanks thanks. for coming in. Yeah, it's a pleasure. The book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. The book is uh, out in bookstores and online for your purchase now. Many thanks to Simon Johnson, along with his co-author, Jonathan Gruber, for working on the book. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 